This morning we're going to be beginning a new series, uh, and you can see the title of it. It's just going to be a short series that will cover the month of August, but it's a question mark for the title. I've been doing that a lot lately, but nonetheless, this is a, an appropriate question mark for a title, and it's called Easy Jesus, Easy Jesus, and I think it's an uh, important question that we need to answer. I have it hidden over here, but let me get it. How many of you remember this little promotional device? That was easy. Anybody remember the easy button? Yeah, it was something that Staples, I think, made a kind of a, quite a little wave with, and uh, it was uh, quite popular for a long time. And, that uh, was easy. Anyway, so I still have one of those around. It actually still functions anyway. So... Uh, so a lot of people think that maybe that's how it really is with Jesus. In fact, someone, uh, you know, I've heard people say, all you got to do is just, you know, push the easy button and everything's taken care of. In fact, some clever Christian lad saw this uh, as an opportunity to make a witnessing t-shirt back when the easy button was a big thing. And... Uh, he, uh, he took the easy button, and here's what he did with it. He put it on a T-shirt, and it said, Jesus, life's problems, one solution. It's just that easy. Now, I have a question. Is this true? Is this true? Now, it was Jesus who said, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But the question is, is what does that really mean? So does this mean that we Christians should expect an easy solution to all of life's problems? Is that what it's saying? Just push the, the Jesus button and boom, everything becomes easy. Now, let me say this. In the eternal sense of salvation, yes. Jesus paid it all. It's a finished work. You don't have to add anything to it. You just have to believe and accept it. Yes. If you remember that Jesus is a person, not a button. He is a someone to have a relationship with, not a device used to fix all the messes of your life. He is a wise counselor and a guide, a loving elder brother who wants you to learn to trust him. He is not an easy button that allows me to live any way I want to live and in the end escape all responsibility for my choices and actions by pushing the magic button. Nothing could be further from the truth. So he's not a system or an it. Salvation is a love relationship with the Savior of creation. So what did Jesus mean when he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? What did he mean? Now, clearly, he didn't mean a life without a yoke or a burden. He mentions that he does have a yoke and that there will be a burden. A yoke may be easy, but it's still a tool for work. In this particular instance, as we're going to discover, easy has a meaning. Easy means a well-fitting yoke, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. And light means a load on the yoke no greater than your grace-empowered ability to carry that load. But it's a load all the same. 
Jesus assumes we realize he's going to put us to work. A lot of people in the, in the kingdom have not realized that. Jesus came to build his kingdom on this earth. And by his spirit, he's still on this earth building his kingdom. You know, the Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to be bringing the kingdom of God to earth in the hearts and the lives of men and women so that ultimately the kingdom can come to earth and for a thousand years Christ will reign even on this earth and subdue all evil and then ultimately in the new heaven and new earth his kingdom will endure forever and we shall rule and reign with him. So Jesus came to build his kingdom and Here's the important thing to understand. He was looking then and he's looking now for dedicated disciples who will be willing to take on his yoke of labor and help him build his eternal kingdom. We have kind of lost sight of this important fact. We kind of got into this fact, well, salvation is free and it's just easy to just believe and, and then everything is good and you got your you know, eternal uh, fire insurance and everything's all right, so you don't really have to do anything, but just show up occasionally in church and do God a favor. Well, again, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, when Jesus talks about his yoke being easy and his burden light, he had in mind something very particular, and those who heard him in their minds immediately related to what he was talking about. Now, you may have heard someone preach on this passage, and I have, and they related the yoke to the yoke that was put on oxen to help, you know, you would pair up oxen and you would put a yoke on them, and it was usually a leather-bound wooden thing that was padded so that the oxen could pull the load and it would not hurt their shoulders too much, and they would be able to work all day doing that. However, that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. He was not talking about the yoke that was put on animals. In Jesus' day, there was a particular kind of trucking industry that we may not be familiar with. They didn't have any 18-wheelers, obviously, uh, no interstates, but they did have a trucking industry. If a farmer needed to get his produce to market, how was he to do that? Well, he hired men, sometimes some wealthy farmers. In those days, of course, slavery was common. He might have had slaves, and the Romans, for example, made slaves of every, uh, every kind of people, mostly Greeks and uh, a lot of others. But the, there was a lot of slaves, and there were people who were hired as day laborers. And someone might actually, his job might be someone who transported a farmer's goods to market. So if a farmer is 20 miles away from the market he wants to send his goods to, how does he get it there? Well, he's going to use a man who will be a transporter, who's going to be the trucker for him. Well, how did he carry it? Well, the system they used for carrying it was they had a, a long pole. And on either end of that pole, they would put a large kind of sack affair, and they would put the produce and the things to be carried in that sack, and they would balance it out pretty evenly with the one on the other end, and then it was to be put on the shoulders. There was only one problem. That pole, after miles and miles of walking over the rough terrain, would cut into your shoulders and make it bleed and be bruised, and it, it, it was very, very painful. So 
the farmer or the merchant who was hiring these men was expected to give them a yoke. This was a leather covered thing that was kind of a U-shape that went around your neck and onto your shoulders that you could put that pole on and that would pad the load so that it was more comfortable to carry. Now, the guys who really didn't care about their day laborers and just, you know, whatever, to just get, get the job done, would just give them what was kind of considered a traditional yoke. It was something that people made and was available everywhere. And sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't because they weren't fitted to your shoulders well. And they often caused a lot of pain and rubbed sores and blisters and those kinds of things. But the landowners and the bosses and the owners who really valued the people who worked for them would take someone who was working for them at this job of transporting their produce and they would take them to a custom yoke maker. And that custom yoke maker would take measurements of the shoulders and of the neck and he would make a yoke that would perfectly fit and be padded in just the right places so that the load was perfectly spread out and it would be comfortable to carry that load over the rough terrain of Judea and Galilee. Now that's really what Jesus has in mind here when he says, my yoke is easy. He's saying, I'm a good master. I'm going to give you the tool you need to carry the load. And at the same time, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to put more on you than you can bear. I'm not going to put, you know, 100 pounds on this end, 100 pounds on this end. If you can only carry, you know, 50 and 50, I'm going to put on you what you can handle. My load is light. So when Jesus talks about taking his yoke and that his load is light, he's not saying we're not going to work. He's saying you need to understand I'm a good master. I'm a good Lord. I'm going to put you to work. I've got a job for you to do, but I'm going to see to it that you've got good equipment, got everything you need, and I'm going to give you something to do that will be perfectly fitted to your strength and your ability. So that's something that many Christians have never discovered, but we need to discover. So in a sense, we can say salvation is easy. Discipleship, however, is demanding. And if you think you can have one without the other, pay attention and listen to what Jesus says. Look at this passage. It's a well-known passage in Luke 4, 26 to 27, and also in verse 33. Jesus says this about those who wanted to be his disciples or who were considering being his followers, his imitators. He said, if you come to me to be my disciple... By comparison, and then I've, this is an inclusion I put in here because it's really what it means in the Greek, to be to your love for me. In other words, in comparison to your love for me, you're, you must hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Sounds like Jesus is saying discipleship is costly. I've often told you that my father used to have a statement. He would read this passage and he would say, you know, God just requires one thing of everybody and that's everything. 
It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Because if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. There's no such thing as a partial Lord. And Jesus wants to be Lord of our lives so that he can save our whole life. And only those who follow Jesus by taking up their cross and counting everything else as nothing as compared to following him and serving him are counted among his disciples. Now, that's an important concept. That Jesus is saying, you want to be my disciple? This is what it will cost you. This is the covenant. This is what I'm asking, and this is what you must be willing to agree to. And only disciples are saved and have eternal life. They are the ones Jesus was speaking of when he said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Remember, the invitation to discipleship is come, follow me. And the word follow here doesn't mean just follow me around over the terrain. It means imitate me, do what I do. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Notice who gets eternal life and shall never perish. The sheep that listen to Jesus' voice and follow and that's a disciple. That's a disciple. So only disciples get eternal life. So it's pretty clear the following is indisputable. If you are saved, you will be a disciple, one who follows or imitates Jesus. If you will not be a disciple, imitator of Jesus, then you are not saved because those things go together unavoidably. What you and I are saved to is a love relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that is discipleship. In other words, you are called and given the gift of salvation so that you will fall in love and follow Jesus, and therefore, that will make you his disciple, one who really imitates him. Now, everything I've been saying about discipleship may strike you as being more like uh, well, that's what I just said, okay. It may strike you as being more like this. Maybe it's a not so easy button. <laughs> you say, what Jesus has been describing sounds very, very hard. But it's not when you accept what he's already done for you. To really get a handle on this we need to go all the way back to what it means to follow Jesus. And to do that, I want to kind of use a passage for our series over the next couple of Sundays here. And I want us to look at Matthew 4. And it's a particular, we'll take Matthew's account of this, but it's the call of Jesus to his first disciples. And so I want us to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And in this account, Matthew records, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they fished for a living. Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. That's an interesting statement. At once, 
they left their nets and followed him. We'll unpack it a little bit in a moment. Jesus is about to forever change these men's identity. They have no idea in any sense of the dynamic of it all of who is walking into their life. They have a little idea. They have heard of Jesus. Uh, probably, as we're going to see later, John and James and maybe even Andrew had been disciples of John the Baptist. They had heard him talk about Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's one of the reasons why Andrew went to Jesus and later went to Peter and said, we found the Messiah when you put the whole story together by harmonizing the Gospels. But the point is, they've heard about Jesus. They probably have met him, but Jesus now walks into their fishing village and gives them an invitation that literally blows their minds. Because as we're going to learn next week, to become a disciple of a famous rabbi was a very rare thing indeed. And Jesus is about to change forever these men's identity. And there are a few questions concerning identity that can help us bring this account into focus for us today. Because God in Christ wants to change your identity to what he created you to be and had in mind for you before he ever created the universe. And believe me, God had you in mind and called you by name and intended you and now has you in existence to discover the identity that he has for you. And these men are about to discover that God has an identity for them that is going to cause them to do something they never dreamed they could do. They will become some of the most important men in all of human history. So... Today, we're going to just look at one question in this identity issue, and let's look at this. And that is the identity issue, who are you? Question number one. If you and I were sitting in Starbucks and I asked you that question, how would you answer? If I looked at you and said, who are you? How would you answer? Well, you know how most of us tend to answer. Most of us answer according to what we do. Well, I'm a salesman, I'm a contractor, I'm a lawn maintenance worker, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a realtor, I'm a stay-at-home mom, one of the most important jobs, of course. Uh, I'm a dad. I mean, we could answer a lot of ways. We usually answer according to our vocation. In other words, we define ourselves by what we do. It's kind of the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker concept of identity if we go to the uh, fairy tales. But what you and I must get a, a very firm handle on in this culture is that you must remember the Bible teaches us your identity is not what you do, or it shouldn't be. Your true sense of identity is deeper than all that. And let me ask you an important question, and based on that fact that the Bible tells you your identity is deeper and more important than what you do. What you do may be important, but it's not the source of your identity. And here's a question that highlights that. If your identity is held hostage to what you do, who will you be when you can no longer do it? You know, there will come a day when you may not be able to do what you do when somebody asks you, who are you? And you answer, well, I, I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that. You know, I am... I'm a, I'm a pastor teacher, and I've, you know, I've trained to be a theologian. I've done all these things all my year, these years. But there will come a day when I can no longer do what I do. 
Now, right now, I'm planning on doing it a whole lot longer, I hope, as long as uh, I'm allowed to do it. And I do have a wife who's promised to tell me when I should quit. Because she says, when you start repeating yourself too much, I'll tell you, sweetie, it's time for you to let somebody else do it. And that will be a good thing, and I will listen. But understand something. I do understand. There may be a day when I cannot preach and teach and and teach theology and study theology and do the things I do all the time. I may not be able to do that any longer, but that will not change my identity. Because my identity is not wrapped up in what I do. It's wrapped up in whose I am. It's wrapped up in the Lord and the Savior who made me and created me and has a purpose for me that goes beyond this mortal body, which will, well, no, let me say, let me be honest, it's wearing out, okay? So (laughs) that will wear out and it is wearing out, but you know, I'm looking forward to the immortal one. And I keep telling you, I keep asking Jesus if he'd let me take my immortal body for a test drive for a few years. He keeps saying no. But but anyway, I'm looking forward to it because he has a purpose for each of us that goes beyond this world. And that's where our identity is wrapped up in him and his purposes and his kingdom. So that's an important question you you need to answer because how you perceive yourself drives behavior. And that is transformational. You know, when I was a boy, you know what my identity was, don't you? My father was a pastor. So what was my identity to the church people? What did they call me? What do you think? They called me the PK. It didn't mean plumber's kit. PK. And there were some expectations that came with being a PK, at least in those days. And their expectations was that I should be an example to the layman's kids. There was only one problem with that. I didn't want to be an example to the layman's kids. I was five years old and I wanted to rough house with my friends just like any other kid. But there were expectations. And we do need to be careful sometimes about the expectations we place on people. Now, fortunately, I was in a good home and had good parents and a healthy environment. And so I managed that just fine and dealt with those expectations because sometimes they were unrealistic and sometimes they weren't because there should be some expectations. But the point is, is that we sometimes place expectations on ourselves and we are trying to force ourselves into cultivating some kind of identity. And God says, no, no, no. You don't create your identity. I already have that designed into you. You need to let me touch you and bring out of your life and grow out of your life the person I made you to be because the seed of who you really are is already there if you will let me put my hand on it. He wants to implant in you something that will bring all that to life. You know, Margaret Thatcher, who was the prime minister of England, when she was prime minister, she actually visited a nursing home. And of course, everyone in the nursing home was excited to have her there, except there was this one particular lady who just seemed to be totally unimpressed and would not pay her any attention whatsoever. Finally, Mrs. Thatcher went over to her and asked her, do you know who I am? The lady looked at her and said, no, sweetie, 
I don't. But do you see that nurse over there? She helps us with this kind of thing. <laughs> Maybe it would be good if we realized that we need Jesus to help us with this kind of thing, with this issue of real identity, because we get it wrong so often. Now, if you had asked Peter and Andrew this question, how would they have answered? Well, you know, they would have probably have answered, we are fishermen. That's what we do. That's what we've done most of our life. And that's probably what we'll do to the day we die. We are fishermen. But it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't ask this question. He already knows who they are and what they do. Jesus bypasses their understanding of their identity and makes them an offer that will forever change their identity. He says, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. How lovingly shrewd Jesus is. In this call, he really does several things, but let me point out three of them real quickly. First of all, he connects the call to something they know about, fishing. Well, I'm going to teach you how to fish. It's, you're going to have to be taught. I'll show you. But I'm going to teach you how to fish. He connects it to something they know. It's a skill that they have learned. And they so therefore have a kind of an analogical connection to what he's asking. And then secondly, he immediately teaches them that, it, yes, it will take skill, but I will teach you, I will show you how to do what you right now don't know how to do. And then he points to the great adventure, the great challenge. They will be learning how to do what they don't know how to do yet, which is to catch and influence and gain the allegiance of people for the kingdom of God. And Peter and Andrew will become a part of of a core group that will be the seed and the foundation of the church, and that church will march down through history with no end. And that church will change everything forever. You see, Jesus did not show up with a written list of his teachings and say to them, imagine if he had done this, here's what I teach, study this and try to follow it over the next two or three years and make something of your life. And if you succeed, and if you do well, perhaps I'll let you be my disciple. A lot of people think that's how it is. I, I talk to people all the time saying, you know, you really ought to get your life squared away with the Lord, you know. And they say, oh, well, I could never come to church. If I came to church, the roof would cave in. You hear that all the time? And I remind people, no, 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 it won't. And they say, oh, yeah, you don't understand who I am. Yeah, I do. You're a sinner just like the rest of us all were until Jesus got a hold of our life. You see, the church is not a showcase for saints. It's a workshop for sinners. So you're welcome. You'll fit right in. And we need to remember that. Yes, he turns us into saints by his grace, but it doesn't have anything to do with our power or ability. And so we need to understand that Jesus didn't show up with a list of his teachings and say, learn all this, learn to, you know, practice this. If you make something really good out of yourself, then I'll come back and see if maybe you could be my disciple. No, that's not how it works. That's how religion works. In fact, Jesus didn't even say, let me make something of your life. 
A lot of people come say, oh, I came to Jesus because I wanted him to make something out of my life. Jesus didn't even offer that. All Jesus said was, come, follow me. Follow me. That's the invitation. You see, the following comes first. Then he will or can then make something of your life. Now, I'm interested and taken by something in the Matthew account because I know that God never minces words. This is the inspired word of God. We said that before we began this message this morning. I'm about to study the incorruptible errant word of God. It's inspired. It's, it's theopneustos. It means it's God-breathed. So God was breathing through Matthew when this account was written. And it's interesting that in this particular account, we read the part about Peter and Andrew. It says, at once, eutheos is the Greek word. And eutheos means immediately without delay, going straight into the task. And so it says, at once they left their nets and followed him. And then a couple of verses later, he walks on down the shore, finds a couple of other brothers, which happened to be James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And it says that they were there with their father in the boat. They were repairing, they were repairing nets. And Jesus said the same thing to them. And they likely knew who Jesus was. They probably had met him before. But he comes to give an invitation. He's now a famous rabbi. And, he's, and, it's, and he said to them, come follow me. And it says immediately, same Greek word, eutheos. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Now pay attention. Why did Matthew not simply say they followed him? Why did he say they immediately, immediately they followed him? Because this word conveys action that means without delay, straight ahead into the call, uh, an uh, immediate response. And he uses it twice. You see, th these are short stories, and the Spirit through Matthew carefully chooses every word. And we will see later how true this is. Now, when I look at this and I see their response, I, I, I think it causes some questions inside of me. It should in you too. How many of us would have responded this way? Immediately? They're leaving their vocations, everything they know. In fact, they will leave for long periods of time, their family. They are going to, in a sense, drop it all and go and follow Jesus and be his servants, his disciples. <clears throat> I think most of us would have had some questions rather than an immediate response. We might want to discuss this a little bit, you know? Is this going to be hard or easy, Jesus? Short-term or long-term commitment? <laughs> what are you asking for here? Uh, do I have to work weekends? Yeah, it turns out you do. Anyway, uh, does this come with a 401k? Uh, I guess it'd be a two... 200.5K now. Everything seems to be cut in half. <coughs> Excuse me. Or if we wanted to really sound spiritual, we might respond, you know, Jesus, I'm really considering what you're asking me here. Come follow you. I'll tell you what, let me go pray about it for about two weeks. And then after I prayed for about two weeks, why don't you come back and I'll give you my answer. 
So spiritual, right? But that's not how they responded at all. It says, they just dropped everything and said, yes. And immediately, they followed him. This tells us something about Jesus that's very important. This tells us Jesus is a very compelling person. And I, I, am, so, I am so intent this morning as we kind of wrap this message up to help you understand that when you meet the real Jesus, he will be compelling. If you've only met the religious Jesus, if you've only met the cultural Jesus, if you've only met the storybook Jesus, if you've only met the Sunday school class Jesus, you may not have met the real Jesus because the real Jesus is compelling and overwhelming. And when you meet him, you'll never be the same. And this story tells me that he's a very compelling person. In fact, it's illustrated all through his life. For example, let's take these fishermen. Now, these are Galilean fishermen. They're not fly fishermen. No, 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 no. They spend all night in a boat out on the Sea of Galilee, casting nets in the water. And when they fill up with fish, they pull them in and fill their boat with fish. These guys got biceps. You understand? These were the bikers of the day, so to speak. These guys are tough. If they hadn't paid close attention <clears throat> to Leviticus, they might have had big tattoos on each arm. Now, the Jews weren't supposed to get tattoos because the pagans tattooed themselves to show devotion to their gods. And God said, there's no image you should put on yourself. So don't do that. <clears throat> I'm not talking about tattoos today. That's your business. But these are the bikers of their day. And they are not going to follow the wimpy Jesus pictured in those Sunday school handouts we used to get as kids. You know, where Jesus looks like he's an anemic soft, timid egghead who's never been outdoors. I got news for you. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Yuck. This is not the Jesus that the Bible tells us about. <clears throat> he walks in among these bikers, so to speak, and commands respect. He's compelling. Dr. Joel Stoll said he had a friend who had been a special forces in the military. And this friend of him told him about his own conversion. And he said one of the things that had to happen for him to really come to Jesus is that he had to get a proper view of Jesus. And he said everything I'd been exposed to was the little feminine, wimpy Jesus. And he said, I didn't want to serve someone I could beat up. That sounds a little silly. But you know, the way we present Jesus sometimes makes that almost a valid question for some people. Especially, maybe a special forces guy from the military. The guy went on to say, he said, I wanted to follow the Jesus of Revelation. Riding down from the skies on a white horse with the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thigh. Oh, would that be a tattoo? I, I don't know. The compelling Jesus. That's what he was saying. I want to serve someone that I believe is worthy to follow. And that's why Jesus can walk into the fishing village of their life and say, come, follow me. 
He's a compelling Savior. And if you meet the real Jesus, it'll be compelling. Well, think about it with the tax gatherers. You know, Jesus got his disciples from the rabble of society. A wimpy Jesus does not walk into the courtyard of a Levi. And remember, Levi was a tax gatherer for the Romans to get taxes from his own people. And when you became a tax gatherer for the Romans, you were considered anathema. The Jews, when they saw you, would spit on you and turn their head and walk the other way. You were not allowed in the temple. You were not allowed in the synagogue. They would not even speak to you except to curse you. But Levi and Zacchaeus and guys like him, they didn't care. They'd sell out their own grandmother if there's enough profit in it. These guys are hard-nosed. These guys are rough. These guys have twisted values. But Jesus walks into the courtyard of a Levi, and he says to him, sell out. Come follow me. And these guys who don't care what anybody thinks, Levi, who Jesus would rename Matthew, grace gift. I find it so interesting. In all the Gospels, Matthew's included, not Matthew's, but uh, in all the other Gospels that record this, his name Levi is used when Jesus calls him. He went to Levi's tax booth. But when Matthew records it, he says he went to Matthew's booth. That wasn't his name. That's the name that Jesus gave him. He called him Matthew. You see, this man had been called every dirty name in the book. But Jesus calls him and renames him Grace Gift when everybody else said he was a curse. That's what Jesus does with identities. You get it? He changes them. And Matthew became a great grace gift. <clears throat> Jesus is compelling. Let me give you another one that shows you how compelling he is. You remember that one of the disciples' name was Simon the Zealot? Was one of Jesus' 12 disciples? Now, you got to remember who a zealot is. You see, there was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and then there were the zealots. Who were the zealots? Well, the zealots were basically a paramilitary group in Israel that wanted to drive the Romans out of Israel and, and help Israel become independent, and they were willing to do it at great cost and bloodshed, at the point of a knife, at the point of a sword, at the point of a spear. They were going to drive the Romans out. They were radicals. If this guy were alive today, he'd have Uzis in his garage. He belonged to an organization like the Michigan Militia. He wants to drive the Romans from Israel. And Jesus walks up to a Simon who is a zealot, who probably was on first name basis with a guy by the name of Barabbas, who would later murder a Roman sentry and, as you know, would be released instead of Jesus on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. He was most likely a zealot. And Jesus walks up to this Simon and says, give all that up. Come, follow me. He's compelling. And so my question to you this morning is this. Have you met this compelling Jesus? Have you? I'm not asking you if you met the Sunday school Jesus in the 
handout. I'm not asking if you met the religious Jesus. I'm not asking you if you met the cultural Jesus, because they got him all wrong and all twisted up. But have you met the Christ of Calvary who conquered death, hell, and the grave and rose again and came seeking you, who came into this world to help you know who he created you to be? That's the Jesus you need to meet, the compelling Jesus. And that's an extremely important question. Do you remember the day he walked into the fishing village of your heart and said, come, follow me? Have you left the worldly nets of trying to weave yourself an identity and fish yourself into a reputation and simply responded to his stark invitation? Let me tell you something, and it's a very important something. If God opens your eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, the creator God walking into your life with the invitation of an eternal lifetime, then you will follow him immediately. The reason many people have not followed is they've not allowed God to open their eyes. They've refused to listen. They won't turn and look. Because when you really see who it is that's walking into your life and saying, come, I want you to be a part of my kingdom. I want you to be a part of my mission I want you to be a laborer in a field that's going to produce fruit that will matter for all eternity. I want you to be a part of what I'm up to, and what I'm up to will never end. That Jesus is compelling. And that Jesus calls to every one of us. Have you seen the compelling Jesus? Let's pray. Father... Open our eyes to see you because there is so much fog and confusion in this world today trying to hide the glorious fact of who you are. And we need to answer the question now. Have we said yes to your invitation? Because you invite us all. And the good news of the gospel is to inform us that you have come into the fishing village of our life and you have come to tell us who we are and call us to what you want us to be. And that is your followers, your imitators. And that you will give us eternal life and we shall never perish. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who needs to turn and look I pray that as they do, you will open the eyes of their hearts so they see you for who you are. Because when they do, they will follow. Because you are compelling and beautiful and incredible. So, Lord, I pray today that if there's any here this morning, that this is their moment. This is when you're walking into their village and saying, it's time to come. It's time to accept my invitation. So I pray this morning you will give them grace to immediately follow you. And with every head bowed and every eye closed as we finish this morning. There were several in the first service and I just can't help but sense there might not be several in this service. And I just want to ask you now, with everyone just bowing your heads and giving everyone some personal space with God. If you hear Jesus speaking to you this morning. 
And you realize that the invitation is there because it goes out. Whosoever will may come and have the water of life freely. And he's calling you to be his disciple. No, it's not an easy button. Jesus did it all for you. But when he calls you, he'll call you to a yoke and to a work that will be just exactly what will give your life meaning and joy and fulfillment. But you've got to answer that call. And this morning, if you hear him calling, I'm going to pray a closing prayer in a moment, but I would just invite you just to lift your hand and say, would you include me in that prayer because I want to answer that call right now. Yes, I see that. I see that. Anyone else? Yes, I see that. I see that one. I see that one. Yes, yes. All over the auditorium, I'm seeing hands. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, as I pray, pray along with me in your own hearts. Father, you see these who have raised their hands, who are saying they want to answer the call that you're giving them. Whatever that, whatever that call is at this moment, it is a call to follow you and to trust you and to imitate you and to accept what you've done for them. And I pray that you will help every one of us especially these who have raised their hands this morning to say, yes, I am a sinner who needs a Savior. And I thank you, Jesus, that you died for my sins and you rose again so that I could conquer death, hell, and the grave. And you want to put your spirit in me so that I can become your disciple and I can become the person that you made me to be and embrace the identity you created for me. And I pray right now that as your spirit is moving in this place, that you help each of these to settle it now. I covenant with you, Lord Jesus. I give you permission to take over my life. I count everything as nothing compared to the fact that I want you to be Lord. No matter what it costs me, I give up everything to follow you. And as they do that, Lord Jesus, I know that your grace will be poured out on them and in them because the following comes first and then the equipping begins to happen. And you will equip them to be your disciple, your imitator. And they will discover the joy of who you have created them to be. And we thank you for what you're doing right now in their hearts. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen and amen.